Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and today's guest is Professor Kyunghyun Cho. Professor Cho is an associate professor of computer science and data science at New York University and CIFAR Fellow of Learning in Machines and Brains. He is also a senior director of Frontier Research at the Prescient Design Team within Genentech Research and Early Development. He was a research scientist at Facebook AI Research from 2017 to 2020 and a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Montreal under the supervision of Prof. Joshua Bengio after receiving his MSc and PhD degrees from Aalto University. He also received the Samsung Ho-On Prize in Engineering in 2021. This was a long, thoroughly enjoyable conversation. Professor Cho is a wonderful storyteller, and I really appreciated the mix of technical insight and broad perspective he brought to the conversation. I think you'll learn a lot from his wealth of experience and perspective, and hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And without further ado, today's guest, Kyunghyun Cho. Professor Cho, our first question, as always, is the origin story. How did you get into AI in the first place? Well, that's a really a good question in the sense that yeah, I think a lot of people just simply forgot about how they started, uh, what they're doing. Uh, that's pretty much the case for me. But if I tra- trace back when I was in my college years, which was more than, let's say now, 13, 14, 15 years ago, because I started my college 20 years ago, almost exactly 21 years ago uh, from today. Uh, back then, the machine learning was not the most popular topic within computer science, at least in Korea, where I studied. Rather, it was software engineering, or in fact, the communications and network engineering that was the two most popular topics within computer science. And of course, I was really into that myself as well. But then near the end of my undergrad years, people started to talk increasingly more about machine learning. And then I started to hear about this machine learning as well as the artificial intelligence among the professors as well as my peers in, at the college. But then I still never had a chance to learn about them that much until about 2008 when I took one course that was a special course in my final year of my college. It took me some time to finish my undergrad. So that's the reason why it, you know, it was two, 2008. And then I decided that the, I want to study further, but it was a bit too late. I never really prepared to go on to the grad school until the very last minute. But fortunately, one of my friends who was taking the course with me back then, he picked up one very sad looking ugly brochure of the master's program in machine learning and data mining from Finland that was uh, left in front of the department office back in Korea. He brought it to me and then he asked me, have you heard of, have you heard of this program? I was like, I didn't even know that there was a university in Finland, to be honest. <laughs> so I picked up the brochure 
I read about the program and I read about the application process. Unlike many of the programs in US that, you know, the program did not require me to take GRE, which was a big advantage because I never prepared for it. I didn't have a time to prepare for it. And I seriously did not have time to take it in time and anyway. So I decided that, okay, let's try to apply to this program. But applying to just one program seems a bit too risky. I therefore decided, uh, apply to three more programs. One in Sweden, one in London, one in Lausanne, Switzerland, as well as actually one more, one in Delft as well in the Netherlands. So I applied to all those master's programs. I got into the all of them except for the one in Lausanne. So in uh, Lausanne, EPFL rejected my application pretty cruelly. But then otherwise, I got into all the other programs. I decided to go to Finland because it was the most mysterious one out of all those uh, universities that gave me a master's admission. And then once I went there, they had a program. If I recall correctly, they called it honors program, but it wasn't really anything special. Any uh, master's students who were starting the program, the program's name was Macademia, were given a chance to spend one day a week at any one of the research labs within the department. And that assignment was done automatically without any separate application process. And I got assigned to neural net net lab that, you know, that I didn't even know existed back then. I was literally assigned to that place. And then I started to talk with some of the postdocs there. And then those postdocs told me to read this book on information theory and machine learning. That is by uh, late Dave McKay. And then in particular, they wanted to look into Boltzmann machines. And then that's how I actually got into this neural net research. And if that automated assignment assigned me to something, some, some other lab, my guess is that yeah, I don't have been here. If my friend did not pick up that ugly set brochure from Finland uh, in front of our department office, I probably wouldn't have ended up here. So origin story, yes, but very just a string of the random events. Let's put it like that. It's interesting how contingent it is just because looking at your career trajectory from my perspective, going from there to working with Prof. Yashua Bengio and your work really having such a massive impact on neural machine translation and those ideas getting taken, it's kind of wild to hear how it feels so so accidental from your perspective. Mm-hmm. Right. It was indeed accidental. So, of course, you know, in a sense, I have to think about why those postdocs, uh, Alex Zillin, who is now a professor at Aalto University in Finland, and Tapani Raiko, who is now, uh, I think, the senior or the principal research scientist at Apple. So why they asked me to look into Boltzmann machine wasn't random in a sense that the, there was about the time where we thought that the deep learning was becoming really interesting because of the what we referred to as back then, uh, layer-wise pre-training. So we would train these restrictive Boltzmann machines or shallow autoencoders over and over on top of each other in order to initialize a very deep network. Of course, by then standard, right? So six to seven layer deep neural network. And then we would fine tune the whole thing with the back propagation. And then we thought this layer-wise pre-training that was put forward by Jeff Hinton, Yashu Benjo, and Yang Lukun in 2006 and seven was going to be the thing back then. And that's the reason why we all thought that the, what we need to work on, or the, what is really interesting is this particular building block called Boltzmann machines, autoencoders, as well as sparse coding. So in a sense, it was the whole, let's say, field of deep learning was just at the very beginning of this ex- its expansion. So I got really lucky. If, you know, if I went to Finland, let's say two years earlier, I wouldn't have worked on that one because no one would have actually thought about Boltzmann machines or whatnot. If I went there two years later, 
that will be already by the time when everyone knows that we can now train these deep neural networks to a certain degree, to the point that it's not about these fundamental concepts that we need to learn or to work on, but it's time for us to solve these problems or the, you know, apply these deep neural networks to applications. So really like the timing does matter, but unfortunately timing is not the thing that we can control, right? So in my case, I only thing I can say is that okay, I got really lucky, right time, uh, right place with right people. That was the case. So unfortunately, nothing to take away from <laughs> other than that. That's fair. I, I think it's interesting to reflect just on the massive impact timing can can have on the trajectory of a career in terms of what are the techniques people are thinking about at the time, what is still considered an unsolved problem. And sometimes it seems like when you when you look back at trajectories, it's as you said, you shift things over two years and history would have been totally different. And it's really difficult to evaluate the counterfactual. But I guess what happens happened. And I think this kind of ties us a little bit into your MSC thesis on improved algorithms for training restricted Boltzmann machines. Do you want to tell me just a little bit about sort of the state of things at the time and kind of what you what you did in that work? Absolutely. So restricted Boltzmann machines or, you know, more general version that is just Boltzmann machines are what we nowadays refer to as energy-based models. Now, energy-based models can be extremely broadly defined. So as long as you have some function that's going to compute a scalar score assigned to any observation or the configuration in the input space, that's an energy-based model. But obviously, energy-based models themselves, without any constraints or the context, are not really useful. So we have to put them into context or put some kind of interpretation. Now, Boltzmann machine is a one way for us to turn the energy-based model into a probabilistic model. Now, we're going to use a Boltzmann-Gibbs distribution in order to turn any energy value into a probability. And then what are the two things that needs to be satisfied? One is that they have to be non-negative. And then the other is that when we integrate over entire this input space or summing over our entire input space, they have to sum to one. So that's how we actually get the Boltzmann machines. Now, Boltzmann machines have an amazing properties. One is that the, we can readily sample from Boltzmann machines or the distribution defined by a Boltzmann machines using deep sampling or any kind of MCMC algorithm. And also it allows us to readily sample from a only a partial observation. So we're going to sample some dimensions while fixing all the other dimensions to what we observe. So there are a number of great properties. However, sampling is a very difficult problem by definition in a high dimensional space. That's why we had to, or the Jeff Hinton had to come up with the idea of restricted Boltzmann machines, which turned out to be a very nice way to implement a block coordinate give sampling. Now we can train a Boltzmann machine or energy-based model on a very high dimensional observation. And then in this high dimensional observational space, MCMC is difficult, but by introducing a hidden layer that captures all those higher order correlations among the dimension, uh, different dimensions in the observation, we can now do the sampling much more efficiently and effectively. Now, this is a very idealized picture of what restricted Boltzmann machines allow us to do. In reality, training a restricted Boltzmann machine is difficult because training requires us to be able to sample effectively from current state of the restricted Boltzmann machines. But it turned out that if we cannot train a model well, 
we cannot sample either. So there is a vicious cycle between inference and learning. And then that's the, one of the problems that I wanted to tackle because we thought that the Boltzmann machines were going to be the most important building blocks in deep learning. Now, one interesting thing is I read about Boltzmann machines. I read about the Hopefield network, which can be thought of as a deterministic version of the Boltzmann machines. And then I started to implement it. Now, as I told you earlier, I was more into software engineering as well as network engineering, which means that the, my tools were largely C, C++, and when it comes to linear algebra, MATLAB. So I started to implement these uh, Boltzmann machines, very basic version in MATLAB. But again, linear algebra nor MATLAB were not my specialty. So I, I implemented a matrix, matrix multiplication using a four full loops or the three full loops, I guess. That's the right way. And then my postdocs really had to teach me how to use MATLAB, how to use all those optimized linear algebra libraries and so on. So I implemented it. And it was working well when I was working in, I don't know, three-dimensional input space, four-dimensional input space, or the input space with, I don't know, 12 binary variables or whatnot. But when we tried to train restricted Boltzmann machine on MNIST, which is now by then, uh, by now, yeah, we can train restricted Boltzmann machine on MNIST in like two minutes. I'm pretty sure that's possible. However, back then, because we didn't really have a GPU machines at Auto University, now I had to convince the department chair to buy them a year later, but I still didn't have it. So it was extremely painful to train any of these restricted Boltzmann machines. Now I was very closely following what Russ Salakudinov wrote, what Jeff Hinton wrote, and so on, but I could never reproduce what they were doing. Not even close. I couldn't just train a model. The loss wouldn't go down. Of course, not to mention that the computing loss itself is kind of impossible with the Boltzmann machines. That, that was, that's a side note. And also I couldn't really, what, what we were doing a lot was to visualize the filters or the weights. And then we wanted to see nice strokes here and there, nice circle here and there, but somehow I couldn't get any one of them. It took me about seven or eight months to realize that the, what everyone was doing is to use zero and one to represent a binary variable value. On the other hand, I was using minus one and one, which introduces a weird symmetry that as stochastic gradient descent has very, very difficult time break to break. So as soon as I replaced minus one with zero in my code, magically I could train a restricted Boltzmann machine on MNIST. It sounds really weird because a lot of uh, students of mine will tell me that if MNIST, that's just a toy data set. Oh, of course, on MNIST, everything works. I can tell you that not everything works. And in fact, what often happens, uh, what happened to me is that I had to spend eight months, essentially, to figure out that the I have I had to use zero and one instead of minus one and one to train restricted Boltzmann machine on MNIST. So yeah, Matthew, that's how it was back then. We were really looking into all these tiny problems in in current uh, nowadays standards, right? So how to train this single hidden layer neural network? How are we going to sample from it? What is the right way to represent a binary variables? What is the right way to write down stochastic gradient flows? And then of course, Autodiff or the uh, Autograd were there, but in rather primitive forms compared to you know, what they are now. So we had to do a lot of things manually. So yeah, that's where we were. And then that's how we got into this business of training with Swift machines and sampling from them. And that's how I ended up writing my master's thesis on that particular topic. Looking at the perspective there, it's just amazing to conceptualize the difference. So when I was just getting started in deep learning, you could take a library like Keras 
my first introduction was with fast.ai and, you know, write this massive VGG model in just a few lines of code. And nobody doing that is even thinking about all of these really deep problems that you had to struggle with in training these, these Boltzmann machines. And it's just interesting to think how today, I suppose people aren't really thinking as much about some of those representational things, you know, the zero and one versus negative one and one, but somebody had to figure that out. And eventually just thinking about that, those kind of small things that got solved at these really tiny levels are so important for the people later on to actually be able to do their work at all. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, of course, Theano was already there uh, in a very primitive form. And also there were a few other libraries that were available. So for instance, Ian Kuhn already from 90s were releasing various types of the auto diff model uh, frameworks and so on. Now, it was written mostly in Lush, which was a big problem <laughs> to be strict. But yeah, so this availability of the tools is amazing, right? So I mean, I'm so glad that my students don't have to struggle from, let's say, all these idiosyncrasies of trying to implement these different algorithms themselves and then all those mistakes that they are very prone to making. However, at the same time, you're right. It doesn't have to be entire field. And it has to be a very, it, it only has to be a very, very small fraction. But, you know, we need to keep on ensuring that the, some people do look into some of these small questions that are just hanging there without being answered in order for us to build a more complete understanding of what we are doing so as to facilitate further in, uh, progress in the future. It's not going to lead to any particular progress nowadays, but, you know, this can be really important down the road. So one of the things that I just want to quickly point out here is that the my recent research on the language models has almost nothing to do with this kind of large-scale language models or how to use them, but more on what is what are some of the degenerate cases or the degeneracies in these language models when we train with a maximum likelihood estimator of these autoregressive models? And then the funny thing is, this is a training uh, criterion we use every day in order to train these large-scale, small-scale language models. And then OpenAI is releasing these gigantic models. Hugging Face is releasing all these gigantic models and whatnot. But then the thing is, the, even at a very small scale, even at a toy scale, we know that there are a lot of issues with the length prediction, a lot of unnecessary repetitions and so on, arising from our lack of complete knowledge about the sampling algorithms as well as training algorithms. So these things are not you know, anything fancy or it's not like anything that people are going to be too much interested in. But these things we just have to work on because you know we, we're supposed to be driven by curiosity, right? If there is a question that is just dangling there, that screams for answers, you know, some of us, very small number of us just have to go there. So in that sense, it's a, you know, both ups and downs. There are both ups and downs. I think the upside is so much higher, of course, with all these amazing toolkits. But hopefully there will always be some small number of people who are going to just digging into these smaller, but uh, questions that are buried under these frameworks. It feels like it's, I mean, it's really not just curiosity, right? These questions of, how do these models work and really taking a very scientific approach to it is incredibly important and valuable. Like everybody today wants to work on the GPT scale models because that is the sexy thing. You get to see all of the fun outputs it produces 
And that's, I suppose, unfortunate that there just isn't as much attention being dedicated. Like when I spoke with Professor Bengio, um, one of his really important papers was on the difficulty of, uh, you know, learning over long timelines with gradient descent. And I recall in that paper, too, he was doing something kind of similar to what you're talking about with your recent research. You're taking this problem that is occurring in a larger network like an RNN or LSTM. You break down the problem into sort of the smallest possible component so that you can actually engage with it scientifically and kind of iterate faster. And that's a really, really important thing to be doing at a small scale as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm a big fan of Yashua, not only uh, his postdoc, but generally how he approaches these problems and then how he actually tries to find problems or the research directions that are not being considered uh, popular or mainstream at any moment. So he was one of the pioneers in deep learning for language modeling or the machine translation already in 1998. So he had an amazing paper on neural language model from 1999 Neurips. And he was, of course, uh, one of the pioneers in automated speech recognition. In fact, you probably have already looked into it and then talked with him about his, uh, I think, the PhD thesis, which was on how to build a hybrid deep learning based or the neural net and HMM hybrid with a model for automated speech recognition. And that's from 1991 or two, if I recall correctly, something along that line, right? So what he really does is to find the problems or the research directions that are going to be really important down the road. And in order to tell what are going to be important, I think it's really important to know what are the limitations of the mainstream approaches are. So for instance, uh, Jan LeCun and Yashua Bengio, they wrote a paper together, almost like the opinion piece to a certain degree in 2006 or seven, talking about the limitations of the kernel-based approaches to large-scale machine learning. And then what they point out is the kind of fundamental limitations that exist in the kernel-based models and then trying to lay out what should be the next step that people should work on. Although all those kernel-based models, you know, including both the Bayesian approaches as well as the support vector machines were mainstream back then. So I think that this is really important. And then you have the Yashua is setting a great example there because he sees all the problems of the mainstream approaches. So you can see that, okay, oh, in order to solve these problems, what should be done? And then that's also what makes him very flexible in terms of, uh, let's say, approaches that he takes. So he's very anti-dogmatic. So in fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the CIFAR Learning and Machines and Brains meeting uh, in Montreal. And then I was listening to Yashua's talk and you know, the Yashua's questions to people and comments on people's work. And then Yashua was suddenly... Uh, what we would refer to as Bayesian. And I, I remember that the Yashua was always extremely, extremely skeptical about Bayesian machine learning and whatnot, but this time he was like, oh, I'm Bayesian. So I had to ask Hugo and a few other people there, wait, when did Yashua become Bayesian? And then I even asked Yashua about it. And then according to him, you know, he identified some of the problems. That is the issue of the identifiability and causal representation learning as well as, as, well as the causal discovery. And then he realized that the in particular for the causal discovery, it's really important to consider all possible ways in which the causal, let's say, uh, mechanism could have given rise to the data that we observe, and then we need to marginalize them out. And that's there, thereby, he is now looking into Bayesian machine learning. And that really was one of those enlightening moments when I realized that they, it's not about what we like or what are the things that we have done so far, 
but it's more likely what we have to do in the future. So this is along the line of what I tell my students as well as some of the people that will reach out to me about asking for advices on their research and whatnot is that they, I think it's really important for us to practice emotional detachment from our own project as well as the idea. It's very difficult, but I think that actually really helps us navigate through this kind of ever-changing world of science and machine learning. That anti-dogmatic stance is really important. At the same time, as you're saying, though, for an academic or for really anybody for whom a large part of their life is dedicated to their work, I think that just gets tied up in so many questions of self-identity and, you know, the previous history of, well, I spent my entire life up to this point working on this problem or using this framework to attack things. So it's not just I use the framework of, you know, Bayesian thinking to attack these problems, but I am a Bayesian, which is so much more core as an identity statement that I can see how it becomes really hard not to be dogmatic, even if somebody thinks of themselves as as non-dogmatic. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's kind of detaching yourself and your emotion from what you have done in particular, I mean, what, not what you're going to do, but more like what you have done a lot over the past, let's say, decade or so. It's very difficult, right? But I think that's why, that's what actually, in my opinion, sets us like the scientists apart from the non-scientists in a sense that the, the reason why we spend years and years being trained to be scientists at grad school, even undergrad, uh, let's say years is because we are being trained not to learn about any particular topic. Any particular topic will evolve over time. But what we are learning is to be a scientist, that is to maintain our critical thinking and be able to both be excited about some research advances, but also be critical about it to the point that we can find the limitations that we can address to make even further progress. So in fact, it is difficult, but if anybody, we like scientists are the ones who can detach our emotions from what we do in order to make a proper scientific progress. I think that's some really good advice for anybody listening to this who themselves is in the progress of scientific training, doing a PhD. I do want to get to your thoughts on limitations of current methods eventually, but right now, actually, I think this would be a good place for us to do some bridging between your MSc thesis. So at that time, restricted Boltzmann machines were a really big thing. You did your PhD thesis on foundations and advances in deep learning, of course, incorporating work from your MSc, and then eventually kind of launching forward to that postdoc. So can you tell me about this this period of your PhD, what was sort of going on since then, um, how you're thinking about Boltzmann machines, about deep learning kind of evolved during that period? So I finished my master's program, and then I decided to stay at Alto University to continue on to the PhD program. Fortunately, I received the scholarship from the Finnish government. So it was quite an easy decision to make. Then I stayed on at the same neural net lab. Now, one unfortunate thing is that the, the neural net lab was shrinking by then. And in fact, the lab is not anymore already. So the professors all retired. There are no more PhD students left, no more postdocs left. So it was shrinking. What that means is that the, I was largely spending the, let's say, two, three years of my PhD working on research projects myself, just alone. 
I was reading papers, I was talking to the postdocs, but that was about it. And then eventually those postdocs, Daphne and Alex also left the university. So at some point I was kind of say, pretty much alone. And that actually was good thing. So unlike nowadays, or even back then in other universities or the other research labs that were much larger and much more, let's say, structured, in my case, I was just writing papers and publishing them in some conferences that are not, let's say, considered top tier or even second tier. But, you know, I wrote those papers whenever I thought that there is something that I want to report to the research community. And then there was no pressure to write many papers or write papers at regular interval. So I really had a huge degree of freedom in terms of reading about different things and then trying out various things that I never got to publish nor even thought that I would publish about. And what that means is that the, I had a chance to look at a really broader picture and then try to look at what, are, what kind of things other people are, were working on. That's the reason why my PhD dissertation does cover a lot of topics. Although you may have noticed that the one topic that I did not spend too much time on was the backpropagation as well as the convolutional neural networks, two of which were becoming the method of choice for training any kind of artificial neural net by the time I was, I was about to graduate in my PhD program. And that's when I realized that the, this necessity of the detachment, again, so I'm, I'm talking about detachment a lot, detachment between what is being used by others in a mainstream, let's say, use, uh, on, uh, in mainstream use cases versus what scientists are supposed to work on or are asked or should work on. So what I did work on during my PhD years that I think I have made technical contributions to are extremely tiny bit in an extremely niche area on how to train a Boltzmann machine, on how to train deep Boltzmann machine, what is the right way to sample from them. But none of these things are actually used or have ever been used by any of the mainstream, let's say, users of these machine learning algorithms. Meanwhile, the machine learning algorithms um, were, let's say, increasingly used by a broader uh, set of people as well as industry. And then that's when I realized that, the, oh, so that's why we can't just dig one well too deep. But we got to always keep everything in the context, on a broader con in the broader context. And that's what I was doing by writing that dissertation. And then by then, uh, the new conference called International, uh, International Conference on Learning Representation, iClear, was born. And the very first conference was in Scottsdale, Arizona, if I recall correctly. That's uh, where I'm from, the AI stats. Ah, That's okay, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it was a, either Hilton or Hyatt Hotel in the middle of nowhere, literally. That's how I remember. And then it was only May or late April. It was collocated with uh, AI stats. So iClear happened right before AI stats. So I went there and there were only about 60, 70 people, if I recall correctly. And then there, there was like the really like 60 people who work on deep learning. Every single one of them in the world was there, stuck in this hotel. It was scorching hot, of course, outside. So we we're just spending the full three days, three meals every day, even a drink at the end of the day. And obviously just talking about what we think are the interesting directions in deep learning. And then it was extremely informative, but also at the same time, there was a great way for me who was doing my PhD almost alone in Finland to network with the people, talk with people like Yasha Benjio. And then one day, one, one morning, one breakfast, I stand next to Yasha and then ask Yasha, Hey, Yasha, you know, I'm going to finish my PhD soon. 
But then I have a funding that actually asked me to spend at least six months abroad before I finish my PhD. So can I visit your lab? And Yashua said just yes. And this is a one thing that I got lucky. That's true. And then, of course, you know, I was brave enough to ask him for that at a breakfast in a conference in Scottsdale, Arizona, the very first conference, the, very, the inaugural one. But also at the same time that I feel sometimes very bad about the next generation or younger generations in machine learning because we could, I could do that. I could afford it. Right? So it was a, just a very small field that was about to explode. So whatever I do, people were there and then people were able to support me. And then I didn't have to go through, go through all those hurdles in order to get there. But nowadays, let's say I, I talk with Ayasha because I visited Montreal recently. Mila, which used to be Lisa back then. So that was uh, within Universal Montreal. Mila is now an independent institute. There's this outside Universal Montreal, McGill or any other university in Montreal. And now there are more than 1,000 people, including professors, students, postdocs, and so on. And when I went to Yashua's lab as a visiting student and then as a postdoc in 2013, if I recall correctly, if you counted everyone, including myself, there must have been like 45 people or so. Wow. So the competition is incredibly difficult. No one outside Mila would have time. I mean, people within Mila would have difficult time talking with Yashua. But back then, I could just literally just walk up to him, stand next to his uh, table, and they said, well, can I visit? And Yoshua was like, sure, that sounds good. So, yeah, that's how I actually ended up in Montreal is that the, a bit of luck and then uh, with a lot of time to just think and read about the, what others are doing in order to put what I did in the context re- and realizing that the science does not necessarily have to have immediate impact on the society. Uh, but still, you know, we have to always put everything into the context. So a bit of a loneliness, being lucky, and then going to Scottsdale, Arizona, I guess. That was my summary of my PhD years. And years. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice TLDR of it. It's interesting to think about the experience of what that must have been like just intellectually of doing your PhD in such an isolated way, because I think that the reason and the benefit a lot of people derive from it is those interactions with an advisor, the training you get from them, the idea exchanges. And you did get that later on at iClear, but at the same time, it seems like you did have this period of time where you got to go into the woods, as it were, all on your own and really just think through, as you said, contextualizing the technical contributions you'd made and really just getting to expand that perspective on the field. And I imagine, I don't know how this feels to you. Do you feel like that time period of really contextualizing the work kind of influenced the way that you approach thinking about your your work today? Yeah, I mean, the, I, I guess I can talk about two things. One is that that time period made me feel less insecure about, let's say, my own work not being, let's say, read by or discussed by other people too much, and also working on things that others don't necessarily find interesting. And I think this is really important at the moment because there are so many people tweeting, or I guess nested on these things, but any, uh, tweeting about their own work, being accepted at this conference, that conference, and whatnot, which makes people feel like, 
everyone is doing something amazing that is worthy of the publication, this top conference, that top conference, and a lot of people just feel very insecure about it, right? Because not because it's a funny thing. We all know as a smart people that the when what we see, so there is a huge selection bias about what we hear about, what others are working on. Thereby, it's not that individuals are making all those progresses every day, but we all feel like because we see just a cloud of these Twitter users or masculine users or sort of Instagram users talking about their amazing papers. And then this cloud feels like there is a one identity associated with it. And then you start comparing yourself with this individual who doesn't exist, this hypothetical individual. And then you know, everyone's insecurity only grows. But then you had to, because of my years in Finland, where I was working on some of the things that I just thought were interesting. And I was publishing in all these, you know, the non-top tier publication venues. And then just talking with various people, reading about what others are doing, and then just trying to contextualize my own work in others' work made me relatively immune to this kind of insecurity. So that's, a, I guess, a one thing that I can talk about. The second direction I can talk about is that the, how easy, how easy it is for any research projects or the idea to be kind of, let's say, become obsolete. Although obsolete in a sense that the, it's obsolete for a time being, it's almost always. But how ideas can become very rapidly obsolete and that it is not what you write that are the artifacts of your PhD, but rather it is your skill set and yourself that are the artifacts of PhD program. Because these Boltzmann machines and restrictive Boltzmann machines, there's a one paper that I'm, uh, two papers that I'm quite proud of, and in particular, a second paper that is on how to train deep Boltzmann machines in two-stage pre-training. That one I'm particularly proud of because that is a time when literally my postdocs back then, Tabani and Raiko and Alexander Ilin, were on John Marcus themselves because the whole group was kind of imploding. And I had to come up with the idea from scratch by myself, did everything, like literally everything myself from the beginning to the end. So I'm very proud of it, but it was eventually published in, at a conference in 2012, and then it became a book chapter in 2013. But then by then, as you recall, in 2012, NeurIPS, there was AlexNet. And then no one was looking into any of these generative models for some time. So that idea that I was super proud of, because I came up with it, became obsolete like literally overnight. No one really cared about it. What that means is that the, we really have to ensure that the how we incentivize scientists as well as how we encourage our students is on how they build up their skill sets for conducting science rather than the immediate outcomes. So that's the second thing that I learned. And I think this is a generally a good idea because the field changes so much. Many of my PhDs who, for instance, graduated last year, a lot of things that they have written down are considered obsolete by a lot of people for time being just because of all these gigantic language models that are doing amazing stuff, right? There will, of course, some of the findings will come back eventually to help us make further progress. But meanwhile, a lot of students do feel a bit uh, discouraged or the, you know, the this what is the word? Not depressed, but more like the well, it does not feel uh, do not feel as good as they should. Let's put it like that to a certain degree. But I always tell them that. But how you now know to conduct science in a rigorous and careful way? That is the artifact of your degree. So you know, the, being able to say that, that, that helps. You know, the... I love that perspective shift. And 
to me, what you said really highlights a couple of things. I think that in technology broadly, there is this sort of perspective that I feel many of us have where we really index on the capabilities, the powers of the individual to affect change. And it is true that especially in technology, especially in AI, a single person can have an outsized impact. But at the same time, I think there is the other perspective you're bringing in that the development of science of any scientific field is so much larger than just one person. And your own experience really reflects that there are historical timeline aspects to this. There are going to be political aspects to the development of a science. Um, And to what you said about that insecurity, I certainly haven't had uh, anywhere near as long a research career as you or your students, but I do recall also feeling that level of insecurity um, in my undergrad. I did work on a few papers and, you know, also published not in top tier venues or anything, but very quickly after those publications happened, I'm like, okay, you know, a month after this gets published, I don't think anybody's going to remember this, which I mean is fine and probably true, but I, I do agree with you that shifting that perspective to, I learned how to think about a problem and really engage with and attack it in a rigorous fashion I think that's the the valuable thing, right? The meta skill, because then you can take that. And I guess there's sort of this orthogonal skill. I don't know if it's entirely orthogonal, orthogonal, but the ability to like identify what an important problem is and then kind of attack it. Um, I guess having that set of scientific skills really enables you to, once you've also developed that skill of finding the important problems, really be able to make that kind of progress. It's the the preparation meets luck kind of thing, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Niyati, you just pointed out the perhaps one of the most important aspects of becoming a scientist, that is learning how to identify or build up your own research question and then thereby build up on your own research program. Because any scientist, or at least the ones who went through PhD program, I tell them that the the most important skill or the the most important thing that the society now expects of you is for you to be able to build up your own independent research program. And the research program implies that it starts with a question that needs to be answered scientifically. Now, unfortunately, uh, we our field, computer science, uh, more broadly, we are at the intersection of engineering and science, like solidly. What that means is that the it's very easy to get go through the PhD program without having to find your own problem or the questions because there are so immediate questions or the problems that need to be solved in this engineering domain. And then thereby you can just pick some of them or often pick by your advisors and then just you carry on trying to answer it. So that's the one skill set that really needs to be trained or the idea given or the provided to our PhD students, and I don't think we are doing it too well. I try my best, but it's a really difficult skill. But eventually, yes, what we want is our scientists to be able to come up with their own independent research program to make the scientific progress. There is one catch here, though, is that the number of independent research programs that are meaningful cannot be too high. The number of directions that are valid for scientific pursuit cannot be too high. Now, what that means is that they eventually will have to decide as a society or as a community, what is the right balance between the scientists with PhD degrees 
scientists with a master's degrees, engineers with a PhD degrees, engineers with a master's degrees, and all the others, right? What is the right balance? We cannot simply just graduate as many PhDs as possible, call all of them research scientists, and then expect all of them to be able to build their own research programs because we know for sure that there cannot be that many research programs that are meaningful and are beneficial to the society and science. So then what is the right way to balance this? And then that also comes together with the incentive structure as well. Just because this whole adaption of, adaption of deep, deep learning and machine learning by the industry has exploded only during the past decade or so, there weren't too many people who would call themselves machine learning engineers or the software engineers with the strong data science and machine learning skills back then. So a lot of PhDs were automatically pulled by these companies and then they were, they were getting a huge amount of compensation. And then thereby, there's a... I would even call it a bit distorted, let's say, sense of the importance as well as the financial benefits associated with the PhDs uh, who specialize in machine learning at the moment. But I don't think this is healthy. Generally, it's about time for the entire community as well as industry sectors and whatnot to think about what is the right incentive structure so as to encourage the different structures or the proportions of the people who do research, who do uh, engineering and whatnot. So we'll see how that goes. but. Well, you know, what we what I know is that they, we've been making progress and, and sci, uh, scientific progress. So I'm pretty sure we'll be able to figure something out in terms of the social progress as well. That's really interesting because it speaks to the importance of that skill of identifying important research programs, what is most beneficial, not just on the individual scale, but on the institutional, on the entire industry, on perhaps a government or or national scale. And that does seem to be something that countries are kind of wrestling with right now, especially in terms of AI. Just looking at sort of the the geopolitical landscape of it all. Um, but I think I think this will take us a little bit on too far of a tangent. So let's maybe work ourselves back to yes. um, your your story of after completing your PhD, you went off to do your postdoc with Yashua Bengio, and I'm really interested to hear kind of how you respond to the impact that this work has had, because I think that you just told me about how you were able to overcome these insecurities about your work, not necessarily getting a lot of attention. And then you do some incredibly influential work that has honestly just been taken to revolutionize the field with Bengio. And so I'd I'd really love to hear what the experience was like at the time doing your postdoc and sort of how you got into some of these questions around your own machine translation and kind of how the idea of attention learning to jointly align and translate came about. Yeah. Oh, well, first of all, thank you for your generous words. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, I, I almost wanted to run away. And hide from oh. <laughs> thank you. Um, just to, to be straight, uh, one, just a kind of a say background that I want to put here is that the, so we often are very fascinated as kind of human beings. We are fascinated by the things that we, th- we did not anticipate happening, right? So some of the things that, are, that were unpredictable by ourselves are the things that fascinated us most. But in my view, often that is a, that is a bit of an illusion. What do I my illusion is that the almost no progress in particular in science is uh, resembles quantum jump. 
is almost always a very slow. And often it can be a bit, let's say, polynomial, but it's largely linear progress. And then sometimes we actually take steps back. But it's linear progress, except for the fact that the no one who is not closely involved in this progress, the whole progress, will be able to see these small changes that have been, uh, progresses that have been made. So when we look at it from the outside, without looking at it for, let's say, I don't know, 50 years, and then suddenly we look at it, look at it, and then see the points between 50 years ago and then now, they, they feel that it's been constant up until now, and then suddenly there was a jump. So in that sense, uh, this neural machine translation, only thing that I have made contribution that is kind of jump is that the, I think I actually coined the term neural machine translation, but anything actual technical contributions that I have made are the ones that kind of say, just tip this threshold, building on top of what has been already done. So as to the point that the public, general public or the broader set of, let's say, researchers outside machine translation to start looking at what has been happening in machine translation. So I want to just you know, to put that as a background. You know, the, it's not that I changed it much, but I kind of say added one thing on top of what has been happening over past, to say, essentially half a century because history of machine translation go all the way back, in fact, to 60s during the Cold War, right? So the U.S. wanted to translate Russian into English. Russia, uh, Soviet wanted to translate English into Russian. But that aside, uh, so I went to Montreal and... This is where the, again, I'm going to talk a bit about the insight of Yashua has is that the, I went there in the summer 2013 and, you know, in the couple of, uh, couple of days after I started to come to the office, Yashua found me and then Yashua was like, oh, so now you're here. Okay. What do you want to work on? And he gave me four options. Fourth one, I don't even remember. The first one was to continue work on Boltzmann machines. Second one was continue to work on something similar, but that is not Boltzmann machines. And that was called Generative Stochastic Network, GSN. That was a new big thing that Yashua found as a really important uh, paradigm in generative modeling, addressing some of the limitations of the Boltzmann machines, as well as a vanilla denoising autoencoder. And then the third option he gave me was machine translation. Now that was, that intrigued me a lot, but then obviously I had to ask Yashua, I mean, Yashua, I, don't know anything about machine translation, which was true. I mean, I had never worked on machine translation. I couldn't, I could barely make connection between machine translation and machine learning back then. And I also didn't think that Yashua knew too much about machine translation. Although, you know, looking back, he actually knew a lot about machine, a lot more about machine translation than I did or anybody at the left did. And I thought that was fascinating. And that's the reason why I don't remember the fourth option. I mean, the, my mind just got stuck with this concept of machine translation. So I decided to work on machine translation. And doing so, uh, what I started to do was to order a textbook on machine translation by Philip Cohen. That's like the, the textbook you would have to read if you want to work on machine translation, or at least back then. And I started to read the first couple of chapters, and I thought, ah, oh, this is actually more boring than I thought. So I, I, I thought, well, anyway, I'm still a visiting student. And then I was finishing up my dissertation. And then there were a few projects that I, I got involved in already. So perhaps I can just give some time thinking about it from scratch and see what I could come up with had I done it from scratch, like without any knowledge. And that's why I got really uh, interested in uh, recurrent neural network because I thought sequences are very naturally handled by recurrent networks. And then that, from there on, I started to think about how to train our language models and whatnot. 
And then we, together with the Rasban, Pascanu, and Chalar Gosar, both of whom are now at DeepMind, we started to implement them in Fiano. But implementing recurrent neural net in Fiano can be painful experience. We had to fix a lot of things and also have to introduce new features with the help from the many of the engineers we had back then. But eventually we built all those framework or the code base and then we started to run some experiments. I couldn't train it. I could literally not, tra- I could not train it at all. So, and then that actually, that time reminded me of my first year in my master's program where I could not train a restrictive post-form machine on MNIST. So it took me some time to figure out what was going wrong. And then how I figured out was, again, by reading a lot of the other people's work from many years, if not a decade or so ago, and then trying to contextualize my failure in, uh, in what others have done so far. And then that's when I got into all these you know, Yashua's earlier work on the vanishing gradient. And then you had the Jürgen Schumacher and Seth Hochreiter's work on long short-term memory units. Although that one, I got to it a bit too late later. So, you know, the, I made some, let's say, embarrassing mistake of not knowing LSTM actually existed. But, you know, I read about it. I read about some other, let's say, work from uh, Mila back then on how to build a recurrent neural net in order to model these mu- audio or music. There was a work by the Nicolas Boulanger, and that's a great paper. I don't think a lot of people are reading, but that's like the one of the most uh, most exciting papers that I have read. I'll send you the uh, link and the paper title later. So then, yeah, that's when I realized that yeah, this vanishing gradient is a real issue that needs to be tackled somewhat, one way or another. And then that's how I spent almost, let's say, half a year trying to figure out what to do about it. Although the answer turned out to be quite simple. The answer was to use the LSTM, except that I didn't know. So I had to come up with a simpler variant that's called Gary Recurrent Unit independently. And then I had to, you know, uh, apologize for my mistake of not doing the uh, thorough literature review. But that happens. I, <laughs> that happens. Although I mean, well, I had to apologize. So I shouldn't say that happens. That happens. But yeah, that actually just happened. And then uh, that's how we actually train a recurrent neural net, let's say, that consists uh, uh, the model encoder decoder that consists of two recurrent neural net where the encoder reads the source and then decoder outputs the target translation. Now we couldn't really do much because we couldn't really train a large enough model. My engineering skill just wasn't there, and also training these models. Now, now looking back, everyone feels that yeah, oh, it's so obvious that we have to scale up everything, but it's never been that obvious that we have to train this gigantic neural network. In that sense, Ilya Suskever, who is leading OpenAI and was co-founder of OpenAI as well, he knew already back then, actually he knew it long ago that the, it, has to, it has to be about scaling. And it has to be about coming up with a, a learning algorithm that scale, both in terms of the size of the model as well as the amount of data. He knew that already in like 2010 or so when I was talking with him for the first time at one of the conferences, and that's amazing, yeah, the, how insightful and forward-looking he, he has been and then continues to be. But I didn't know, and I wasn't sure if that was the case either. And I still have some suspicious uh, skepticism myself, uh, just being a scientist, right? So then uh, what happened is that the Google, so Ilya's team, Ilya Suskever, Kwok Lee, as well as the Oreo, they also worked on the same thing. We learned that later on. And then they were able to build a standalone neural machine translation system. We had to rely on the phrase-based statistical machine translation system. 
and build a language uh, neural machine translation system on top of that, but they didn't have, need the phrase-based model. It turned out that the, the major difference was the scale. Their models are literally about 16 times larger than our model. Now, then the question is, how quickly do we need to re-implement what they have done? And then how can we actually start on top of that? That's the kind of, let's say, default mindset, I would say, uh, when we perform machine learning research these things. Can we quickly re-implement what others have done? Let's find the most obvious limitations, and then let's try to address them. But, you know, uh, being lonely for, let's say, I don't know, four years doing my PhD, and also uh, being not having received too much of the direct advice or the supervision from my supervisors as well as the uh, you know postdocs back then, I always had that idea that the, what if I can do it much better without having to replicate exactly what they have done because re-implementing or replicating what others have done, very important. I tell my students and everyone else, but at the same time, it is also quite boring. Right? Scientifically, that's the most boring part because that doesn't involve any creativity. It has to be done, but it's quite boring. So I was essentially uh, slacking off a bit for over the summer, trying to figure out ah, is there any other way to any other way you know the, to overcome this issue of scaling. I really don't want to re-implement the whole thing and then train the model for let's say a month and a half on the eight GPU machines. Nowadays, it feels really small, but still, that was like the big deal back then. And then what Yashua was doing was Yashua got encouraged by our initial progress and also encouraged by the, what Google has done. He saw that there is a huge potential for the next few years pursuing this direction of machine translation. So what he did was to send a lot of interns toward me. So I was able to build a small group, let's say four to five people, mostly interns or the junior PhD students working on machine translation with me. But I've never been a big good good person at organizing any of the groups or the leading a group. So we're just literally just talking with each other a lot, running this experiments, that experiments, you know, hanging out with each other on the weekends. We'll just drink some beer and whatnot. And then we, one of those interns was at Dima Badanao. So he's the Badanao Els Badanao. And then he back then was a master's student at Jacobs University in Germany or Austria. Germany, I think, yes, in Bremen. And he's one of those geniuses that, uh, the few geniuses that I've ever had a pleasure to work with directly. And one day he came to the office in the morning and then we were like, oh, I think what we need to do in order to fix our issue, how to make it better. And then, so I said it and then he said it separately. And I was like, oh, you know, I did Dima, you go ahead first. Dima like laid out this idea that we used in this, um, you know, neural machine translation by jointly aligning and translating on the paper beautifully. That was one of those few ideas, if not only idea that I heard the explanation and that I knew that that was going to work. And I knew that this has to work. And I knew that if it doesn't work, then this whole problem is doomed. I could see that. I didn't even tell them my idea because my idea was so dumb. <laughs> my idea was, okay, so. It looks like compressing the whole thing into a single vector is really difficult. That we actually already figured out because we wrote, uh, we ran extensive set of experiments and then reported it in workshop papers. So I was like, every time we generate one word, 
We're going to reread the entire source sentence and then decide what word has to be the next one. And it was just making everything so much more complicated and expensive. And it was computationally simply not viable back then for us, in particular with my engineering skill. Although it turned out that the DeepMind or Google scale compute can allow people to do so. So now Kalkbrenner, who used to be at DeepMind, in fact, wrote a paper uh, called, was it Grid LSTM or something like that? That does something similar. And then it actually worked pretty well. But due to the computational inefficiency, that never took a uh, that, that was never actually taken on by the community. So that's how we actually end up in this kind of attention model. And then we, Dima is also an amazing software engineer. So Dima, together with a few other uh, interns and the junior PhD students back then, there like the Bart, Van Marienborg, and a few other people, implemented, ran experiments. And he did some visualization after training the model for about a week. And it was beautiful, exactly as anticipated by Dima. And exact, working exactly as I thought it should and it must. It was beautiful. That's why, and we quickly wrote a paper because we wanted to share it with the community as quickly as possible. Then we put it on archive and quite a lot of people liked it. At the same time, we released the code as open source as well, which I think helped a lot and a lot. It was compared to many of the existing machine translation toolkits that were openly available, but were very difficult to use or were not openly available compared to those two. What we released was just literally one GitHub repo. You know, you check out the repo, clone the repo, and then just follow the instruction about three lines of the comments line. Boom, you could get a working machine translation system. That model still did not uh, get to the level of, the, let's say, Google's model or not back then, but we could see that this was right direction to go. Yes. And it seems you were right. I do have a few questions about this set of papers. The first is just thinking through the evolution of things over time. After attention got taken forward and really taken to its logical endpoint with the development of the transformer, it seems like not nearly as much attention gets paid to some of the models that you were thinking about when you published learning phrase representations, RNNs, LSTMs, they're taught as kind of like, this is maybe a historical artifact in deep learning courses. This is a lead up to understanding the transformer. But as entities in themselves, at least from my perspective, I don't see nearly as much attention being paid to them. Do you think there are insights remaining to be gleaned from RNNs and these earlier architectures, despite the fact that NLP now seems to be all about transformers? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So perhaps we can start by talking about what makes transformers this successful. And the reason why transformers are successful is not because you know the authors of the attention is all you need paper were just geniuses who came up with the transformer overnight. I mean, I know most of them, very good friends as well as I respect them a lot, but that's not how science works, right? As we talked about earlier, it looks like so, to the people who haven't followed, followed the whole field evolution of deep learning, right? But if you think about what are the major ingredients of transformers, first, first major ingredient is of course attention mechanism. But what is this attention mechanism? Is our way to build a neural net that is able to cope with the variable sized input. Right. So that's one component. But what is the second ingredient is the residual connection. And what is this residual connection? is our way of addressing the issue of vanishing gradient. 
and how we actually ended up with this residual connection goes all the way back to 1992 and 1994 when the vanishing gradient was identified as major issue in training deep neural networks. And then the shortcut connections were introduced in LSTM. The shortcut connections were introduced in this, uh, people used to call it leaky recurrent neural network as well as a gated recurrent neural network. And then thereby we got here. So this is one of the core concepts behind LSTM or any kind of recurrent neural network we know how to teach. And then what is the third main ingredient is the normalization layer. So it doesn't really have to be batch normalization or whatnot, but some kind of normalization in order to make loss function that we use to be better conditioned. And this idea actually shows up in many of the earlier papers that were written by Ian McCune, in fact. So if you look into the efficiency backprop paper by Ian McCune from 1998 or 2001 of them, then he actually does talk about normalization quite a lot and then how normalization affects the conditioning of loss functions. So we use that. And then the fourth one, the perhaps one of the most important one that we kind of take as granted is the stochastic gradient descent. How can we make each individual update or the computational cost associated with the individual update to be constant with respect to the size of the data that we have so that we can scale up in terms of the data? So if you view it from this angle of having four major ingredients that make up transformers, what we end up with is Four, let's say, incremental advances that have been made over the past, let's say, 40 years or 30 years of deep learning research. So in that sense, it's unsurprising that transformers are successful because these four things are really important and it took, took us many decades to figure them out. And then transformers use all four of them. So of course, they have to be successful. Now then the question we have, I think we need to ask is that the what are now remaining ingredients that we need to find and implement in order to go beyond the current transformers in order uh, and solve much more challenging problems. And in that sense, recurrence is really important because recurrence is equivalent to memory or the long-term memory. And then recurrence is all our way to build a truly lifelong or continual learning agents. Essentially, each agent is going to have a single episode that it goes through. And this episode is infinitely long. Then what we need to do is to, on the fly, figure out how to build up the memory and then how to store the item, items as well as removing items. And then this one is going to be infinitely long, so we can't really come back to the earlier stages over and over. So the attention alone is not going to be enough. So in that sense, I think the recurrency is still a very, very important and fascinating topic. And also at the same time, the stochastic gradient descent is not going to be on its own the full thing because we won't be able to compute the gradient fully anyway. It will have to be some kind of online learning algorithm that does have some stochasticity because you know we, want, we are dealing with some noise anyway. So some of the ingredients that we have are going to be important ingredients, but we will need a few more advances or the innovations in order to go truly beyond what the kind of problems that we are solving. So yeah, I hope recurrentness are going to come back in this kind of new setup, but they will require quite a lot of innovations on top of what we know already. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I can certainly see how many innovations that might come ahead of us can be gleaned by looking back to ideas people have already had and integrating them in new ways. I suppose the the picture of the development of science that you've been talking about, it really feels like 
people are proposing these ingredients at different times, different papers, different perhaps research agendas that might have felt like big things in themselves may have gone nowhere, but still might contain ingredients that just come together in the right configuration later on to create a really cool recipe like the Transformer that does make a massive impact. And as you said, if you've been kind of staring at it from the outside, keeping up every once in a while, it's like, whoa, we just saw this massive jump. But exactly to what you're saying, the the seeds have been laid out over time and it's just like they got mixed in the right way for for something to happen. But everything was kind of already there. Oh, absolutely. And of course, you know, the, uh, I want to just you know, the, uh, clarify that the mixing those ingredients in the right way to make them actually work in a harmony to get the most out of them is extremely, extremely difficult, right? So the Transformer authors like the uh, Shishi as well as the, uh, others there, extremely, uh, they've done an amazing job, right? Now they just figured out what are the important, most important ingredients that the whole community has been able to come up with. And then they actually showed us, showed the entire community, actually broader community. Nowadays, you know, the general public, what we can do by combining them in just the right way. So yeah, so it's amazing what they have achieved. Yeah, I think that that ability to combine ideas together and kind of take those things is a really important skill. I do want to jump a little bit forward to some of your more recent work. And you had this really interesting paper on learning distributed representations of sentences from unlabeled data, which I think there are a lot of kind of interesting overlaps because so much of the work in NLP has been on distributed representations of words. And when we look at what transformers and attention are doing, they are forming like phrasal representations, but that's still by aggregating at that word level, right? And giving attention weights to things. Whereas you're kind of attacking this in a little bit of a different way. Could you tell me a bit about the ideas in this paper? Yeah, so that was still a pretty old paper, 2016 or 17, that I did together with Felix Hill, who is now at DeepMind, but was a visiting student at Montreal back then. So what often happens is that the computer scientists or the methods scientists like us, our job is to come up with the tools that can be used for not just one problem, but as many problems as possible, because that's kind of, let's say, the purpose of our, of our job, right? So we're tool makers. And then making one tool that is specialized for only one job is not the best way to go forward because that job might disappear very easily, right? So then... Um, what has happened in natural language processing in the early 2000, uh, 2010s and so on is that they, they got extremely fascinated and mesmerized by the idea of pre-trained word embeddings. So Tomasz Mikulov, as well as a few other people at Google, have been pushing that direction a lot, trying to train a very, very simple but scalable single hidden layer neural network on a vast amount of text in order to get one vector representation for each word. Sometimes you could extend it to, let's say, bigrams, let's say, phrases of the two words or three words. But, you know, basic idea was that we get one vector for one word. And then somehow plugging that in the existing machine learning-based systems, instead of giving individual words as they are, but giving their representa- vector representations, massively improved the generalization ability of many of the existing algorithms. So everyone was fascinated about it. 
But then you had the Felix Hill and a few other people. Felix Hill is a representative example of who are people who have a very deep knowledge in the domain science, but at the same time are not afraid of just going beyond and then trying out some new things based on what he feels or what they feel are correct way to go move forward. And Felix was there and we were drinking and talking a lot. And then one of the things that we wanted to make sure was that the natural language processing field does not get stuck at this you uh, at using deep learning for word representation learning. We really knew and then we had a strong conviction. In fact, Felix had an extremely strong conviction that the the future has to be where we get the representation of increasingly larger units of text going all the way to sentences. I mean, the back then sentences were still considered a bit of a larger unit, right, compared to words. And then that vector representation or set representation we would get for this kind of larger units will be even more powerful or give us a better generalizing ability compared to just getting the vector representations of individual words. So we wanted to test that out. Of course, we weren't the first ones. There were quite a few work coming out of the Mirella Lapadas group in the University of Edinburgh, as well as, of course, uh, Richard Soker, who was a PhD student back then or was about to graduate from Stanford and whatnot. But often they were all looking into one or two so-called state-of-the-art approach and then trying to make some changes or propose something that's supposed to replace that only. And what happens is that the, when everyone is doing that, we easily lose the sight of the overall picture. What are the actual innovations that are being happening? And then what are the relationships among them? So Felix and I decided to just, let's try to implement all those things that we can imagine, that we know, and then let's add in some of the innovations or the add in some of these uh, re- missing, let's say, connections among these algorithms. And then let's test them all together. And we put a gigantic table there to show that, okay, all these different algorithms do end up giving us the different types of the representation or the uh, vector representations of different properties. And then we have to be a bit more careful when we try to claim that any particular representation learning algorithm for sentences are better or worse. So that was our, I think, the most important contribution. Now, though, we did make uh, start a pretty horrible trend, I gotta say, uh, that persisted for another, let's say, three to four years since then is to for people to just put gigantic table in the in their paper with all the benchmarks that they can imagine without thinking too much. I mean, we weren't thinking too much. We were all, you know, they kind of say all the stage uh, researchers. So that one, I apologize to everyone who has been suffering from reading all those gigantic tables, but that's what we did. And I think, uh, I hope, I hope that these, some of the kind of good lessons, like, okay, we got to look at diverse set of the benchmarks. We got to look at diverse set of, let's say, methods that are somewhat related, but are not really clear how they are related. I think that this kind of, let's say, uh, necessity of looking at a bigger picture or the bigger, you know, looking at the forest, uh, has been taken on by other people, but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, the, I, I almost feel like the, downside has been uh spreading so much faster than the upside of this paper that's fair you mentioned in this paper that one of your methods skip thought could be said to exploit a type of sentence level distributional hypothesis and i just thought that was really interesting there's another paper that kind of attacks us from a different angle um of looking at sort of the distributional semantic model and so in your paper, you note that the role of word order is unclear. And this other paper kind of 
I think they like prove that strings of words whose words they say point wisely entail each other. And specifically where the strings have the same grammatical structure, admit this compositional notion of entailment. But I'm curious to you, just intuitively, how convincing you find the distributional hypothesis when you try to extend it to phrases, to sentences? Yeah, oh, that's a, that's a you know, uh, good question. Perhaps instead of talking about distributional hypothesis itself or the extensibility or the applicability of distributional hypothesis to units that are larger than words, what I think we need to talk about first is that the what is the right way to draw a conclusion from these empirical studies using some of the uh, benchmarks that were collected or constructed by others in uh, a priori? What we have been doing, because we've been focusing a lot on scale, scalability of these algorithms, as well as scalability, uh, uh, well, scalability of these algorithms for both model size as well as the data set size, we are in a interesting regimen where rigorous statistical analysis is very difficult just because of the scale at which we work. And at the same time, we feel like we may not necessarily need it because we are looking at so many different aspects using so many data points at the same time. So with this in our mind, uh, what the community has been doing largely is to just build a large enough benchmark as much as we can. And then we try to run various different algorithms through the various different approaches that we want to compare against each other by just running them on this particular benchmark or set of benchmarks. Unfortunately, as the algorithms become increasingly more complicated, and then also the number of hyperparameters associated with these algorithms grows, it becomes increasingly easier for people to exploit the fact that we only have a single benchmark or this fixed set of small, uh, fixed small number of benchmarks. Because how much effort you put into each algorithm can impact the outcome very much in because when, when you have a very small number of data points for testing them. So in this paper, as well as the many other papers, I'm guilty myself, by the way. Yeah, I mean, the, at the end of the day, I probably was was one of the contributing people to this trend. So I'm very, very much guilty myself. And because of this, we have to be a bit more rigorous or the, we have to be much more careful about thinking, uh, considering some of the other alternatives, uh, some of the alternatives for evaluation, even with the fixed set of benchmarks that we, that we use. For instance, uh, two years ago or a year ago, together with my former PhD student, Ethan Perez, and then Dao Kila, who used to work at uh, Facebook together with me many years ago, we wrote a paper on what is the right way to evaluate if any of the features of our algorithm or the feature set are important for solving any particular problem that is given to us as a data set of data, a set of data points. For that, we device or did we kind of put forward a proposal called reason and data analysis, where we use the idea of the minimum description length as a way to evaluate how well the model is going to generalize. And we use online coding algorithm uh, or frequential coding algorithm in order to estimate that as well as we can in the context of deep learning and then show that the, a lot of the conclusions that we draw, we as in community drew earlier on using a single benchmark and just checking the validation accuracy may not hold 
as soon as we change the evaluation methodology to another methodology, and in particular, if we believe that this another alternative is better, then a lot of the conclusions that we drew and that we thought we took as correct conclusion were just simply wrong. And then one of the experiments we ran in this paper, so recent data analysis, was on checking the importance of the word order within a sentence across diverse set of uh, natural language processing tasks. And then what we saw there was that the it actually does matter. It actually does matter in terms of solving many of these natural language processing, and well, in particular, text classification problems. That was actually one of the very satisfying results we saw because I don't know if you have followed every year until then, there, there's going to be at least a pair of papers. One paper saying that the word order doesn't matter. The other paper saying that the word order matters. But then we, I think that we were able to firmly show that if we follow a better evaluation methodology, then in many of these tests, not all of them, many of these tests, word order indeed does matter. So yeah, I'm at the uh, distributional hypothesis. So to check whether the distributional hypothesis extends beyond word level, we need to have not only a experimental protocol to check that, but also we need to have a better evaluation protocol that everyone can agree on that can be used for us to draw form conclusion. But I don't think we do have one yet. The The evaluation component of that is really interesting. It seems that many of the questions that the community is trying to think about right now, not just the distributional hypothesis, don't seem to have just yet evaluation benchmarks that allow us to appropriately engage and rigorously rigorously answer the questions if we if we subject you know existing methods to those evaluation benchmarks yeah so this is a really great point and then perhaps i'm i'm not an expert in evaluation but you know the one thing i can point out is that the one of the reasons why evaluation seems very difficult and then one of the reasons why we feel like the existing evaluation methodologies are very limited is because we tend to, we, we, we are a bit st stuck in this cage where everything has to be statically and easily done. That is that the, we want the data set that we are going to use for benchmark to be provided to us in a static form. And that we need to be able to compute this single number that tells us how well our model works on this uh, benchmark very easily. But this is a huge limitation. At the end of the day, what we need is for us to evaluate how well these models generalize. And as the input space grows, we're now in a combinatorial space, obviously a single static set that we use over and over will not tell us whether these models are truly generalizing across the entire input space that are relevant. So it has to be dynamic. And then the easily computing the metric, that one is really issue, is that the, we know that representation learning is important. Why do we know that the representation learning is important? It's because we know that the raw representation of any observations or the input are simply not proper or prop, not uh, they it does not properly encode the similarity structures that matter. But then easy to compute metric implies that we are going to do some simple comparison operation in this surface form where we know that the similarities, true similarities are not captured. 
So it's a proxy and it's a very lousy proxy. So what that means is that the, the metrics must be also often learned. So we need to be able to learn a better representation of the input. It doesn't have to be vector representation, right? Some better representation. And then in that representation space, we need to look at the similarities. So two work, uh, two lines of research that I want to just point out along these two lines. So dynamic and trainable or the learned evaluation metrics that I want to talk about. The first one is the, what, what they often refer to as a dynamic benchmark or DynaBench. And then a few other uh, directions such as a counterfactual analysis or devaluation. This line of the work has been uh, kind of pushed forward by Dow Killa, who is now at Hugging Face and who was at Facebook earlier. And also Zach Lipton at CMU. So these two have been kind of pushing for, okay, our evaluation has to be dynamic. And then the dynamic nature has to be supported or facilitated by human annotators as well. So I think that that's an interesting direction that needs to be pushed further. And I'm very happy to see that increasingly more people in the community are interested in this direction. The second one is, you know, my own work, you know, at your case, yeah. <laughs> but that is, that has been actually picked up by some other people as well as the, there were parallel work from the other groups. But just to tell you one thing, this was the project that was led by Alex Wang, my former PhD student, who was doing internship at Facebook back then. The idea is that the, what is the right way to evaluate the factuality of summar, summar, summarization system or summaries generated by summarization systems? Of course, people are going to simply compare the actual words within, uh, between the summary, the generated summary, and the ground truth summary written by humans. But that's a lousy way to do so, right? Because there are so many different ways in which the summaries can be written down. So you could write a perfectly good summary that does not use any of the words that were used in the ground truth summary, except for some of the functional words, right? So what we did was that the, based on our advances based on the recent advances in text generation as well as question answering, can we actually use a question generation model and the question answering model in pair to compare whether the original paragraph and a generated summary would give the same answer or would support the same answer to a bunch of generated questions. If for any generated question coming out of the summaries were answered by QA system, I use by using either the original text or the summary in the same way, then we know that the factual content of the summary agrees with the factual content of the original, uh, you know, article. And what this means is that, but of course, it's not easy to do so. We have to train a question generator. We need to train a question answering system. And for every generated summary, we got to run the question generator multiple times to get a bunch of questions. We need to run the QA system twice for every question that has been generated. We need to look at the agreement. However, that actually does give us not only the factuality metric, but also the interpretability. If the metric was really low, what were these generated questions for which original article and the generated summary disagreed on? And we can really literally check what were those in, uh, well, incorrect facts there. So this kind of, let's say, directions are necessary, but as you can see, it's really difficult, right? In the case of dynamic evaluation, we need to literally build a whole platform that involves human as well as machine learning systems. And we cannot have the static evaluation. So every time we want to evaluate a system, we got to submit it to some platform, wait for it to run this whole thing, and then give us the results. Now, second one, Every time we want to evaluate some system, we have to have an, a, a metric that may require a complexity that is even higher 
than building the original system as well, which can be quite daunting. But at the end of the day, we are not here to do something easy. We are here to solve problems that are challenging. So I believe both of these directions we must pursue as a community. Those are both really interesting. On the first one about dynamic benchmarks, it does seem like there are people in the reinforcement learning and open-endedness communities who are exploring some of those ideas. So I spoke to the co-founders of a company called Generally Intelligent that is looking at sort of RL in particular as a method for generalization right now. And their Avalon benchmark is one that's sort of supposed to evolve with the agent. And then similarly, Joel Lehman, who I spoke to some months ago, um, had this really cool paper on evolution with large models. And that's sort of looking at also the agent environment kind of co-evolution where you have these agents that are learning to do things. They they leave these DCT sort of objects in their environments. And then so the environment now kind of has a different flavor and different challenges for the agent to interact with. And so kind of seeing how that could transpose though into other domains like NLP seems like an interesting problem. I also thought what you said about um, your counterfactual analysis was interesting just because looking at some other work we've seen recently. So referencing Professor Lipton again, I know that he's done some really fascinating work on how when you take certain models, you pre-train them on like real corpora versus nonsense text. If you just subject them to like these super high level benchmarks that don't give you a lot of insight into the model, then you run into some problems. But it sounds like your question answering methodology is really offering a way to peek into what the model is actually saying as output. And so I would imagine avoids some of those problems that he interrogated. Yeah, absolutely. So these are all quite early attempts. And then hopefully you know, the, over the next few years or so, we'll have a much, let's say, well-founded, well-grounded, and well-principled platforms that support all this kind of, let's say, advanced evaluation or the, let's say, more correct evaluation than the evaluation methodologies that we use these days. I hope so too. There are two other recent papers of yours that I think it might be appropriate to kind of pair together just because they both speak to ideas of fine-tuning models and then also sort of intervening on performance and behavior. So one of them is mix out this effective regularization to fine-tune large-scale models. And then the other was adaptive fusion, where you identified issues in existing approaches to transfer learning. Could you tell me a little bit about maybe the suite of problems around sort of fine-tuning and, and intervening on pre-trained models, and then perhaps a little bit about these two works. Right. So it's interesting because nowadays uh, we are all about pre-training and fine-tuning. And then that was the case in, when I was doing my master's and even before, is that when we were talking about the layerized pre-training and then fine-tuning it on a small number of the labeled examples, so it's interesting to see that the, just like fashion, research fashion also, uh, I don't know, like comes back every 10 years, I guess. Um, and it's always been a big question. And then this is a really big question that involves a lot of different areas within deep learning, including optimization, model architecture, and you know, the generalization gap and whatnot. Is that the, what does pre-training actually do? If you think about stochastic gradient descent as our main optimizer, we always have to start somewhere. And then we start somewhere, and then we're going to make small but noisy steps a lot of times. Eventually, 
uh, eventually to arrive at one of the nearly one of the local minimum. And then, you know, the optimal we see is that, okay, those solutions generalize really well compared to, let's say, using other types of the optimizers that may not even require us to specify the initial points and whatnot. Then that's the reason why we all use it. What pre-training does is really nothing but telling us where we should start this optimization procedure from. And if you start from that angle, it's a bit weird in a sense that the, how can the use of completely different loss function on a completely different data set tell us what the, what, what is a good initial point to run SGD on a completely different data set with a completely different loss function again, right? And then this is a huge mystery you have. There are many different, let's say, suspicions as well as the potential, let's say, proposals on understanding this. One is that the, yes, although the data sets and those functions do differ, but the data sets do tend to have a lot of overlap in terms of the internal structures. Perhaps that's the reason why the initial layers work as a good feature extractor. And then initial layer working working as a good feature extractor actually means that we are going to have less of an issue of vanishing gradient. So maybe that is the way in which it works. But then one might say that the, is that really true? How do we actually verify that that is the case? Because given any two data sets, very large unlabeled data sets and small, let's say, labeled data sets, even just uh, quantifying how, diff- how different they are is on its own a research problem that's probably more difficult to answer than answering why pre-training helps fine-tuning. So there are so many questions like that. And then you know, we can go even further. What if we were training a model on multiple loss functions simultaneously? So that's going to be called multitask learning. How do we know that multitask learning work, uh, helps? Or does it always help? Is it possible that some of those tasks are interfering with each other in a destructive way so that, in fact, it's better to train individual models for the individual loss functions. And then this is also the thing that we haven't been able to answer. I mean, in fact, uh, one of my PhD students, Taro Makino, just presented in this past NeurIPS on how to do some provable analysis of multitask learning from the perspective of the causal representation learning. So we can do some analysis, but there is a huge gap between the let's say, mathematical or statistical understanding of multitask learning and the multitask learning practice. So there are so many questions about this whole practice that has become de facto practice for everyone at the moment. So what what we what I've been doing over the past, let's say, three to four years is to try to answer some of these small questions that may not be relevant to what people are doing in practice. And one of them was this mix-out that is if we believe that the initialization is what pre-training gets us, then what is the right way to ensure that we don't move too far away from this initial point? Because much of our analysis on this optimization, iterative optimization algorithms assume Markovian nature, meaning that if we run it enough, it's going to forget about the initial points. But in reality, we know that that is not the case. And if that were the case, then pre-training shouldn't matter. So we wanted to see if we can explicitly encourage that the optimization or SGD stays near the starting point that was provided by the pre-training. However, without interfering too much. 
in a sense that there's a real trade-off between want to stay near the initial point, but at the same time, we need to go uh, substantially further away in order to solve the problem well. So that was one of the attempts, and it was run by my postdoc, Charyang. And then he's done an amazing let's say, mathematical analysis of what kind of things can be done. And then this was really nice. You know, I, I like this paper a lot just because this actually does uh, gave me a lot of, let's say, perspectives on what pre-training does and what fine-tuning can do and also what dropout does as well. But at the same time, I believe the Charyang wasn't too satisfied just because no one really uses Mixout. <laughs> you know, just like what we talked about earlier, right? And then the other paper, Adapter Fusion, was similarly, but for the multitask learning. So Adapter, the idea of Adapter was proposed by people from University of Edinburgh, let's say uh, Ian Murray and his PhD student, back then, back then PhD student. And that has been actually picked up by some of the people in Europe, uh, uh, you know, led by the Jonas Piper to become, let's say, one of the major ways in which you can use these pre-trained language, uh, language models without uh, having a burden of fine-tuning the entire thing, which can be quite costly and which can be very, very difficult for teams that don't have the expertise. So the idea is that we're going to plug in these smaller adapters across the layers of the pre-trained language models. And then we're only going to fine-tune or to train those adapters while leaving all the other parameters of the pre-trained model intact. This works really well. There's something called Adapter Hub that Jonas also built. And then you can download a lot of the adapters or download your own adapters for particular language models in order to use it as if those hugging face models do or whatnot are providing the models do. Now, this is a nice idea, but then you start having a question. If we believe that the multitask learning helps, then what we want is that we want to introduce multiple adapters to solve multiple problems simultaneously. But one thing we know is that there's always a destructive interference patterns across these tasks. Can we actually, if we knew that, there are two ways to solve. One, that is the traditional, and then you have the most uh, prominent way to solve the problem is that we just do the amazing amount of hyperparameter tuning up to the point that we find that particular weighting factors for the tasks, that the destructive interference is minimized. But the other way, which I, and more fan of is if we know that that happens, can we design the whole algorithm to avoid that thing, avoid that kind of a uh, issue? And in this case, adapter fusion is exactly what we, uh, how we answer this question or the address this issue is that we're going to train one adapter for each of the tasks. And then what we do is that they, we're going to retrain a adapter fusion layer for each of these tasks so that whatever has been already captured for other tasks without any interference from the others can be used together. So fuse, fuse together. So it's a two-stage uh, training procedure, so which is a bit more cumbersome, but at the same time, completely bypasses the issue of the destructive interference. Again, the same thing with the mix out. I like this kind of algorithm where, you know, if there is an issue, let's design an algorithm that's going to bypass or address it perfectly. But then you have to decide, uh, so, and I learned a lot about you know, what it means for the tasks to be uh, destructively interfering with each other, what it means to fuse all these representations coming out of the adapters and whatnot. I learned a lot, but the lead authors, Aishwarya as well as the Jonas, I don't think they were as happy just because not a lot of people used use this algorithm. That's fair. Do you have intuitions on, from the perspective of, like what's going on inside 
these networks and sort of their training dynamics, these aspects of destructive interference, because it feels like the kind of gold star, as it were, is if we could, in pretty much an arithmetical way, just kind of add models together. And there's been recent work kind of doing this. So um, we've seen Git Rebasin. And then there was a really cool paper I just noticed called Task Vectors, where they're literally like, we get this vector by subtracting the weights of a pre-trained network from the weights of a fine-tuned network. And then I think they found that they were actually able to, like, add these vectors to certain models without interfering with some of the other task um, performance. They were able to subtract them. So I feel like this is a really interesting set of ideas, but I am curious just from your perspective, if you have sort of intuitions on like the what's kind of going on, like a layer deeper than that. Yeah, oh, that's, a, that's a great question. So perhaps you know, the preliminary is that the we really have to be careful when we manipulate or try to analyze parameters of these neural networks ourselves. As uh, and then you know, the as EY Ten, who is now at DeepMind and also at Oxford, pointed out in his one of the keynote talks at New York's twenty seventeen or something like that, he did mention very explicitly the, that the parameters of deep neural networks are meaningless. They don't have any particular meaning. These models are by construction non non identifiable models, which means that the even if we have infinite amount of data coming out of some known neural network whose architecture is also known, we won't be able to find exact configuration using the data, network architecture, and the loss functions that we use. So what that means is that the, we can easily fool ourselves. It's almost like reading millions of tea leaves. If I have millions of the tea leaves, I can see whatever I want to see, right? So we have to be a bit careful. And then what that means is that the a lot of these things that people have reported, there comes the, again, the issue of evaluation. What is the right way to know that what they have reported or what this kind of observations that we they have made are not particular or specific to the particular set of experiments or the set of benchmarks that they have run on? Because it's so higher dimension. It's a billions of dimensions sometimes these days. In billions of dimensions, the number of directions, the vectors that you have is so much and because it's a because of curse of dimensionality is not it hasn't been solved. It's not a thing that can be solved. It's just a fact of life, right? High dimensional space, the volume grows exponentially with respect to dimensions. And then we're talking about the billions of dimensions. We can always plug in a lot of things, especially if you're looking at a finite number of things. And benchmarks are always there are only finite number of them, right? Almost by design. So what this actually tells me at least is that the this this what we what people started to refer to as science of deep learning, according to my postdoc Naomi Safra, in the science of deep learning, we may be reading too many tea leaves at the moment. And what needs to be done first, in my opinion, is to establish this scientific practice or the principle behind scientific practice of doing science of deep learning. What it, what, how do we know, how do we draw conclusions based on our observation of these deep neural networks that are going, uh, that are going to be general, uh, that generalized to different situations? And then what are the ways in which we can, uh, describe the limitations or the context under which these observations are valid? So this kind of the say, 
more like the scientific revolution type of thing, right? So what happened in the scientific revolution was for the whole community or the whole humanity to establish what we mean by conducting science. And then that's how essentially we jumped away from alchemy toward chemistry, how we jumped away from the astrology, the astronomy, and so on, right? And I feel like we are probably at the cusp of doing so in this science of deep learning as well. Uh, but we're probably not yet there yet. So my suggestion, follow my post on Naomi Safa, and then her blog posts are very, very interesting to read along this line. Yeah, it's it's interesting to take those comments and then sort of look at some of the the deep learning theory work that's been going on recently, because I think that we've observed a lot of fascinating phenomena. So like deep double descent, for instance, um, Greg Yang has done a lot of really great work on the science of deep learning. There are people like Sanjeev Arora who are doing wonderful work. And we've also seen like mechanistic interpretability. I do think you're right though, that it is kind of like reading tea leaves to stare at the parameters or just like stare at the model architecture and be like, I can, I can intuit what is going on here. I do think you have to kind of subject it at some sort of higher level, as you're saying, and then be really careful about the contextualization of, of what you observe. Absolutely. I mean, the, those people's are, those people's work, absolutely fascinating. I'm a big fan of Greg Young. I'm a big fan of Sanjeev. I'm a big fan of, you know, all those people that you have mentioned. I mean, the, I thought did rebasing work was really like uh, mind boggling. Right? I'm like, what? How can that happen? It's just that, you know, uh, perhaps you know, the, a bit more higher, le- at a higher level, you know, General public has, we have to ensure that the general public in our society is excited by the scientific progress that we make. That is how we actually ensure that the science is supported by the society so that we continue to make progress. But for scientific community, we have to be both excited by and also be extremely skeptical about every progress that we make. So that, that's just uh, the one thing that I wanted to say when I said, you know, reading millions of tea leaves. Not that, you know, Sanjeev or Greg are reading millions of tea leaves, but they are the, they, I mean, those are the, those people who know that we can fall into that kind of issue as UIT pointing out. So, you know, they are doing a great work. But generally, we just need to reiterate it so that our community continues to be aware of this potential as a pitfall. I think this is a good place for us to pivot into some higher level thoughts. And maybe we can use your paper on language grounded policy as kind of a jumping off point um, to first talk about maybe grounding in general and how that relates to language models, to natural language processing. And then we can kind of go into some reflections just on sort of the past year, I suppose, that we've seen in the field. But first, could you tell me just a little bit about this paper, what vision language navigation is, what's sort of hard about it, and what you were attacking with this paper in the sort of discriminative and generative language grounded policies. Right. Uh, so the vision language navigation is a bit of a made-up task, I, I have to say. So the idea is that the can we train a robot to navigate through an indoor environment in order to fulfill an instruction that was given in language. Now, it sounds like a very natural problem, but it's extremely open-ended. And trying to create a benchmark to measure the progress in this direction is very difficult. 
So a lot of people, including let's say Drew Batra and uh, and Facebook AI Research and uh, Georgia Tech, I think, uh, together with the uh, the David Parikh, his partner, who is also at Facebook AI Research and at Georgia Tech. So they have been spending a lot of time over the past many years trying to build up this kind of more artificial, but that is easily controllable environment to measure the progress of the vision language navigation. And of course, there's been other people as well. And then at the, there, the idea is that, okay, there are going to be a few rooms or the 3D models of the few houses that were reserved for training and reserved for testing because we want to make sure that the, we build a robot that is generalizing over different layouts of the indoors. And then they're going to create a bunch of, bunch of, let's say, endpoints or the goals that the robot needs to fulfill. And then they use human annotation or the crowdsourcing in order to generate a bunch of instructions that would correspond to solving those problems. And then we use that as a data in order to train a policy that's going to be tested on this kind of test environments in order to see how often it succeeds, <coughs> excuse me. And then second thing is that the, how efficiently it solves the problem. Because you can imagine that the, unless there is a some kind of strong interaction that's going to break the whole thing, what happens is Robot can go to any goal position by just ex- exhaustively search for all possible locations in the door. So we don't want them. So it's a pretty complicated problem at the end of the day. But then this vision language navigation problem, how people have been solving together with the, uh, you know, paired with the advances in deep learning is to build a policy neural net that's going to take as the input language instruction. And then the current state or the, the all the positions or the visual, let's say, um, view of all the places that it has visited so far, and then trying to predict whether it should go straight, left, right, or back. Or sometimes, you know, it can be a bit more continuous as well. Now, these things will also be conditioned on how things look like front, left, right, and back as well. Now, this is a fascinating problem. A lot of people want to solve this problem. A lot of people are working on that. So I'm not going to talk about how people have been tackling because I'm not really working on them myself. But one thing that, you know, uh, you noticed is that the, weirdly, the action distribution, so that is that the given any position, what is the correct action to take? That distribution is not really uniform, which makes sense because we are in a very bounded, let's say, environment. And then you have the, all the, all the indoor houses are kind of, let's say, pretty much the same. There's a kitchen, there's a living room. And then the doors are actually next to a door into the house is often next to the living room and so on. So because of that, there is a bit of a bias. And then in particular, when we look at training environments and the test environments, this distribution changes. What that means is that the, this connects to one of the simplest possible uh, case of the distributional shift or the so-called distributional shift where the target marginal distribution shifts between training and test time. Tackling that is supposed to be really easy because we know and then we actually all learn how to tackle that in machine learning one-on-one. One-on-one, when we talk about the generative model, generative classifier versus discriminative classifier. Or you may actually have heard the example of the naive base versus logistic regression. In the case of the logistic regression, we model the P of Y given X directly. So it's not easy to factor out P of Y and then replace a P of Y with, let's say, P prime of Y. On the other hand, if we get the naive base, we factor it into P of Y, times P of X given Y, and then we can easily replace P of Y. 
or sometimes you just remove p of y because you can assume that in the test time, so any kind of let's say non-uniform marginal marginal distribution over the label or the action is probably superior. That is specific to this training environment. So we want to just remove that. To do that, we propose here that they will. Why don't we train a generative policy instead of the discriminative policy that everyone was using? So we really took a basic step. Is that the well looking at this problem? Seems like there's going to be a very basic case of distributional shift in the target uh, marginal action distribution. So then, as machine learning 101 says, we can we should try generative or the naive base like policy where we can refactor out the marginal distribution over the actions and then we're going to discard it. And indeed, as anticipated, perhaps obviously in hindsight, it does work better, especially in the validation or the test time where the environments or the indoor environments were unseen during training. So this is this is one of those papers that I like uh, because we went really back to the basic. And then I do teach introduction to machine learning to undergrad students myself. And then that's like the second week, essentially, literally. And then that idea turned out to be an important idea to keep in our mind and then use it when we see the problem like this. And then somehow, so far, not a lot of people have used it. And I think you know, it's an interesting thing how we sometimes, we, we're so advanced to the point that sometimes we forget about the, let's say, first week of the machine learning 101. So this is what happened. And then it's kind of, this this uh, this problem is artificial in a sense that the grounding is like absolute necessity. You have to look at the uh, yeah, the surrounding area in order to decide whether you can go to left or right or straight for, straight. But when it comes to grounding in general, it's very very difficult to quantify how much grounding is necessary, and then whether grounding is necessary to solve some problems. Yeah, it does seem like people have a lot of different intuitions on grounding, but it's also really interesting, as you said. I mean, certainly in solving many problems, it is a really good idea to keep the basics in mind. And here, I guess there's also the higher level interpretation of the generative versus discriminative. So in one case, um, you're assuming that you have an action that is generated from an instruction, the natural language instruction. In the other way, the generative, the action is assumed to generate the instruction itself, which is kind of interesting just to map that to the the mathematical probabilistic representations um because it's like i don't know i think sometimes when you you flip between these approaches you get something that feels kind of unintuitive when i state it at like a high level but then you look at the the mathematical problem you're actually having to solve and it's like wow that is way easier for me to do with what i have available yeah exactly so if you think about it if we only look at it from the statistical point of view what Bayes' rule tells us, Bayes' rule is just you know, the uh, definition, right? So it's not really anything, but it's just identity in some sense. But what Bayes' rule tells us is that the direction of these edges in probabilistic graphical models do not matter that much because we can always flip them, right? Now, we, we are, uh, but then the thing is, there are, as you said, uh, different ways to, uh, the, these ed- the directions actually tell us different ways by which we can parametrize these distributions. So depending on what kind of data is available, and then depending on what kind of technologies we have for the uh, probabilistic estimation are available, some are more preferable than the others. But then we can go further and think about, are there cases, what, what are the framework 
under which this directionality actually matters even more so. And then that's where the causality comes in. So in the land of the causality, the directionality actually does matter. But that one is kind of a say, completely new field. Causal machine learning or the causal representation learning is very new. Uh, you know, Taro Makino, so my PhD student, he's working on this together with a few other students and me. But it's a very, very early stage. But if there is a new PhD student or the new master students who are listening to this, that's the one interesting direction to work on. You never want to work on what everyone else is already working on. Yeah, that does seem to be a really interesting and promising direction. And in the vein of of new things, we are talking at the end of or close to the end of a year of what seems to have been a really unrelenting set of advances in AI. Um, it's really been a particularly interesting year. I, I do wonder if they kind of say that at the end of every year, though, to be honest. And I just love to hear how kind of from your position also in Europe's having happened recently, how you respond to and think about just everything that's happened this year. And if there's anything that you have kind of pulled out as particularly interesting or or impactful. Yeah, I mean, it is super exciting year. I mean, you're right. I mean, every year has been exciting so far ever since I started my own research career. Like literally, like every year has been exciting. And that's a good thing, right? And as I said uh, earlier, we should be excited by the scientific progress is every May. Now, one thing that I have learned is that the, indeed, some of these algorithms that we made, we have designed, we have made, we have deployed, are extremely powerful when they are coupled together with the amazing amount of compute and amazing amount of data. And then this is a kind of, say, the very basic thing we all learn when we start learning about data science, machine learning or whatnot, the power of data. But then you have the seeing is very different from just hearing about hypothetical cases, right? So I think that this is really telling us a lot about what are possible beyond what we are doing now in many different sectors. And I think that's a really great, uh, the advances or the progresses that we have seen. But at the same time, because we have to be skeptical as a scientist ourselves, uh, what we have to be careful about is that the, is, are we actually seeing, uh, or these scientific progresses that we see, are these about data or are these about algorithms? Because we are thinking about machine learning, unlike usual non-machine learning computer science, is that the, the distinction between programming and learning and data are completely fuzzy. So what is programming? Programming is for our for for us to be able to compress the data in an optimal way. So for instance, let's say you have tons of questions that you want to ask me. I can receive one question at a time and then try to give you the answer. And then I can look at the amount of answers that I need to send you. But then if I could code up or program the perfect QA machine that imitates me perfectly, I can send you this fixed number of bytes to you. You just run it over and over without uh, having to send me any of the questions. And I don't have to send you any of the answers. And that's the perfect compression, right? And then this is where the idea of the minimum description line, Kolmogorov complexity, all those different concepts all collide with each other. And then what that means is that the, when we do machine learning in order to build, when we use machine learning to build these predictive models, 
what we are doing is essentially to compress data as much as we can when we don't know how to code up the optimal comp optimally compressed version ourselves. And there, there, therefore, if we say that we have made a great advances in machine learning by looking at this stable diffusion, chat GPT, and whatnot, we might be simply saying that, oh, look at the amazing amount of data or the amazing data we have and what these data sets actually have on the line. And, you know, you, depending on which kind of views you take, one of them could be much less exciting than the other. So some people might say that, oh, we have all these amazing data and we know how to extract all those underlying regularities. That's amazing. Some might say that. Some others might say that, oh, well, it turned out that the algorithms were all from, let's say, 1950s, uh, thanks to Rosenblatt and Claude Shannon. So we haven't really made any progress. So you know, there's always uh, the different perspectives there. So in that sense, my skeptical side of the this year's progress is that the still unclear whether we have made the kind of advances in algorithm or the mathematical understanding of machine learning, or that we have simply been able to collect more data that tends to encode more of these, uh, let's say, increasingly rare, let's say, patterns. So it's still very exciting. I'm, like, I'm playing around with the chat GPT or perplexity AIs, you know, like, what was it, ask me anything kind of thing. Oh my God, it's so fun, man. Yeah. ChatGPT is a really interesting case in point, just because when I look at it, it's, as you said, certainly impressive. And just looking at at least what we know of the advances that have been made, for one, data is a really important aspect of that. There is the reinforcement learning from human feedback method that is probably also kind of happening in real time right now as we all continue to play with it. And it's amazing the sorts of things it can generate and do, but then you do very quickly start to notice limitations. Like my one of my philosophy professors from college got it to like generate some course syllabi, and then he asked it to add in secondary sources, and then it just started making things up. So, you know, you're kind of at the surface level and it's good. I guess my intuition is that we're still at a place where on a surface level, this thing is very impressive, but you go much deeper and it's not doing much. But it does seem like that doesn't prevent people from getting scared. I had a friend just text me like, hey, I want to talk about ChatGPT sometime because I'm really scared now. Um, and, you know, there's there's some validity to the concern, but I do feel like in many ways we're we're a lot farther away than it looks like when kind of, as you said before, you're looking at it from the outside perspective. Yeah, ChatGPT, uh, it's, it's fascinating, right? It's fascinating. Uh, and I mean, I mean, of course, the the reinforcement learning uh, based on human feedback. I don't know. I don't think there is enough, let's say, uh, details for me to be able to say anything like technical and smart about it. But generally saying, what I see is that the so what are the most surprising aspect of uh, ChatGPT? Is it the fact that it generates all those fluent text? Is it that it is able to take into account all those prompts that we are giving? Now. What I want to, what I'm most, let's say, surprised by is the second aspect. So we knew that the language models, if we train them with a large enough data, it's going to generate amazing things. We knew that from the very beginning. I mean, there is a reason why we've all worked on it for the decades, right? Not just one or two years. You know, like Yoshua had a neural language model from 1998. So because we knew that 
using this kind of continuous representation will get us the generalization. And generalization in this particular case is mixing in all those different things while ensuring that the fluency is maintained. But the second aspect is less trivial. That is that the, if we have a small amount of data, the biggest issue is that there are so many superior correlations that are going to be captured by our learning algorithms to the point that the, some of the superior correlations that it captures first are going to nullify or in, make it invalid the true correlations that may be more difficult to capture using stochastic gradient descent. But what we see is that, and then what that often ends up doing is that this model starts to hallucinate while ignoring some of the inputs. So we see that in machine translation, when the input is, let's say, weird, then translation system is going to just hallucinate because it ignores the input. But then what, we, what I see with the ChatGPT as well as these large-scale language models is that they, they do not ignore these prompts as much. Perhaps, you know, the, the, that's the most exciting thing that I see is that when the amount of data really grew, and they didn't have to be exponentially large with respect to the number of the potential let's say, combinations. But it turned out that the, if we really increase the amount of the data that we train our model on, these models do tend to capture all these really true correlations, more so than superior correlations that prevent the models from let's say, seeing all those prompts or the previous inputs really, really carefully and then react based on that. So that's the more uh, exciting thing I see. But generally, uh, the, uh, not too many details are out there. So I don't think I can actually say anything smart or technical about it. Sure. That's a really exciting insight. I think a, a good, perhaps, closing question for us to rest on is just on your perspective, perhaps, on balance as a researcher. So on your website, it says he tries his best to find a balance among machine learning, natural language processing, and life but almost always fails to do so. And I think that what you said about your PhD experience and some of your career kind of highlights also this balance between, on the one hand, execution on some really deep, narrow problem you're tackling, but then also thinking at kind of a higher level about the problems in one's field. And so I suppose my last question to you has to be, how do you think about finding balance as a researcher, both within your work as a researcher, but then also more broadly between your research and the rest of your life? Yeah, so the balance between our work and life. Um, I'm at the, as, as I wrote there, I'm at the, I've been largely failing. I'm at the, I've failed a lot. You know, at the, uh, I, I'm at the... I think you know, in the first let's say, few years of my assistant professorship, I think uh, I was pretty workaholic. I was working like nonstop, you know, not taking a break or anything like that. And I don't think I could have, even if I were there and then seeing myself being uh, essentially like, driving myself to, uh, I mean, to working myself to the death, I don't think I could have actually told myself anything to prevent me from doing so. But Time actually helped. Time actually does help. And then you know, they're seeing more broadly and then reading about more other people's life and the meeting people that I had I hadn't had a chance to meet. And then all these things actually have helped. So when one starts having a broader view and more balanced view, I think that that actually gives us a kind of very important lesson that the it's not just one thing. The, the what we are what any individual is working on at the moment are, is not going to be the one that defines that individual forever. There are much more things to, you know, like, right, beyond the natural language processing and machine learning. And then 
being able to balance these three things, at least for me, gives me a way to do better on all three aspects. So, but I don't know why, and then I don't know what to tell other people to do that. But you know, the time has helped. Time has helped. That's fair. Well, that's a really good perspective. And Professor Cho, I really appreciate your work. You really have made an incredible impact on the field, and I appreciate your humility about all of that and about your work. Um, so I just want to thank you for everything you've done for the field, but then also for being so generous with your time and for speaking to me today. It was really an honor. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. And then hope to hear back from you at some point. Yes. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.